listening to the weekly podcast presented by the Lighthouse Midlothian. For more information, please visit us at www.dfwlighthouse.org. Thank you and God bless. trying to calculate 25 years and uh, it actually may have been a little bit longer than that Uh, but all that simply tells me is how old I am getting (laughs) but it's good to be with you here and uh, I'm thankful for the long-term relationship that I've had with this fellowship but just out of curiosity let me ask you uh, how many of you have never seen me here at this church before? Would you raise your hand? Anybody? Okay, five or six of you. Okay. Uh, welcome to my big church family. Okay. Now, in all honesty, how many of you others have heard me preach and some of it went like that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that today that you will get a lot more down here and not a whole lot going over your head. <clears throat> I have a question for you. Um, when you look at your life and you look at post, I mean, pre-Jesus and post-Jesus in your life, is there a difference? How many of you would say that the way you were pre-Jesus, that when Jesus came in, that he came in and made a radical change in who you were? How many of you had a radical change when he came into your life? Okay, yeah. I think that's probably the case for everybody. Um, Something really radical and extreme takes place in a person's heart and life when Jesus comes in. There's a shifting and a change of our perceptions of life our priorities in life, the principles which guide our life. There's just a real upheaval, and we become a new creation. It's a radical change. This morning I want to talk to you about radical alternative. But I want to take that same experience which you had individually when Jesus came in and made a radical change in your life, and I want us to apply that same principle to when Jesus came into his own life and his own culture and his own society. Did Jesus make a radical change in Israel? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it was so radical, uh, they would vacillate from praising him to wanting to kill him. He turned their world upside down. And not only did he bring a radical new religion and a new relationship to God as a a, a radical alternative to the law and living under the weight of the law, he, he brought a whole new family of God that was radically different than before. Radically different. Now, 
I want to read from a verse of Scripture. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. And I want us to kind of see this radical alternative of life that Jesus is presenting. And he's speaking now through the apostle Paul. Paul writes to the church at Galatia and says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How many of you know what the word gospel means? What's the word gospel mean? Good news. Let me give you the bad news first. We'll get the bad news out of the way, okay? Uh, it's bad news if you were a Jew, a male, and a slave owner. That's bad news. Because what Jesus now brought was a new life in God, and Paul is expressing this. We are now one in Christ in God's kingdom where he now made the Gentile and the female and the slave have equal footing as did the Jew, the male, and the slave owner. You see, what the gospel did was give a radical alternative to life in God to where there is I'm going to use the word because I'm going there this morning about where our nation is. If you were a Jew and now all of a sudden a Gentile has the same approach to God that you've always had. What was the pride of the Jews? We're God's chosen people. I mean, we've got the inside track. And if you want to get to him, you have to come through us. And even after the birth of Christianity, if you will, in that first generation of believers. The Jews in the church still wanted Gentiles to be circumcised and become Jews first and then become Christians. So they're struggling with this whole concept of having their world turned upside down. Now, we were the big dog. And all of a sudden, the Gentiles have the same footing with God as we have. Male? Big dog in the house. I mean, you are king of your kingdom. Your wife is a piece of property. Female is just a piece of property. And now all of a sudden, Jesus comes along, turns all that upside down, and now the female has as much right with God as the male does. And if you're a slave owner, it's bad news. Because now all of a sudden the slave has the same right to God that you have. He has the same value to God that you have. So there's this topsy-turvy radical alternative that's coming and it's turning the world upside down. And so Paul writes and says, hey, listen. This is what life is like in the kingdom of God. This is how God sees people in his family. And they're all alike in value. Now, in Christ, I want to use a sports term, the playing field is now level. There is now 
that there's no more distinction and privilege by ethnicity. Jewish privilege over Gentile privilege, which was zero. There's no more of that in Christ. There's no more distinction or privilege in gender, male over female. Nor is there any more distinction or privilege of social standing, slave owner and slave. God just wiped all of that out in the coming of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians. Paul speaks to the church at Corinth. He's touching on this very same idea of this radical alternative of, of things being turned upside down by Jesus. And he says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Here's the cause, here's the effect. The cause is we are now all one in Christ Jesus. The effect is we no longer see each other through the eyes of the flesh. Now, let me kind of touch on that a little bit further in that I, I am fortunate to have sight, I am not blind. And so when he says that we no longer see through the eyes of the flesh, I mean, you understand, he's not talking about seeing with these eyes. He's talking about seeing with the precept of spiritual eyes versus natural eyes. And so now since we are born again and we are one in Christ Jesus, we no longer see people through natural eyes, but through spiritual eyes. I have eyes to see. And I, most of the time, can tell a difference between male and female. I, I'm just being honest with you. I, I don't always know, okay? But most of the time, I can tell the difference between male and female, okay? I have eyes, see? And I can tell the difference most of the time between a black brother and myself. So what's he talking about? If we no longer see through these eyes of the flesh, he's talking about I no longer see, evaluate, or give value to based upon the flesh. I no longer have the right nor the privilege to look down on any female. Well, she's less than me. Or anyone of any other ethnicity or race. Because we as believers are now to see everyone through the eyes of God. And not through the eyes of our flesh. Let me give you another passage of scripture from the book of Galatians. Chapter 6 verses 2 and 3. Carry one another's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's pretty pointed, isn't he? Okay. First part's okay. 
Carry one another's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Okay? But if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, have you ever met anybody who thought they were somebody? Okay? And they usually had a higher opinion of themselves than anybody else did. But the scripture says they deceive themselves because they really don't have more value in God's eyes than anyone else. Now where I'm going with all this is to where our nation has been for years and particularly the last two or three months. What we're seeing in the racial tension and strife in our nation is not new. It's reached a new dimension. But the principle is not new. I have been compelled to ask myself the question, what is the role of the church in what's taking place? And when I was asking myself that question, I went back to the very things that I've read to you this morning. What was the role in the church when you have got ethnicity issues, Jew and Gentile, when you have gender issues, male and female, when you have issues of social standing, who has privilege and who doesn't. And they had to deal with that. What was the role in the church in that? And I've had to look and say, what is the role in the American church today with where our country is and what's happening in this nation? One of the things that struck me as I was reading through this and going back to the first century church was the passage I gave you in Galatians chapter 6 verses 2 and 3 and is that you bear one another's burdens. And that struck me. And I would tell you this, in this hour where this nation is It is time for the church to offer a radical alternative to race and to religion. It is my persuasion that the church has not done a good job of that. I really think that starting in the 1960s, there began to be a shift away from the church's focus on the Holy Spirit and on God over onto self. And there began to be, I mean, the Christian bookstores were flooded with self-help books and the attention away from the Holy Spirit to me. 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 And when that happened, we began to see, you can track this, there began to be a moral decay of new dimensions in this nation. And all the while, though, while this is taking place, the church is over here preaching its distorted prosperity message and the church is getting richer and the society is becoming poorer. Okay?
there's a passage in Luke and a passage in Matthew, Matthew that have really resonated with me. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And you are like salt of the world. And the light, you don't go and take and hide it. It doesn't serve its purpose. And salt, if it's lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything. It's lost its purpose. Now, Dr. Luke speaks that in very benign language like I just did. Very powerful, but very benign. Matthew adds another phrase. Frankly, I love it. Because when he talks about salt, he not only says if it's lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything. He takes it a step further and says, it's not even worth putting on a dung pile. Okay, let me tell you how we would say that in Arkansas. No, I won't tell you how we would say that in Arkansas, okay? But how many of you know what Arkansas is? I'm talking about what? Do you know that's a new definition of useless? If you can't put salt on a pile of dung and it has no influence on done that's useless do you get that it's useless and all you do is, is you just throw it out then to be trampled on by men and I'm stopping and thinking, Lord, the church got so off track. We're over here and we're getting rich and we're getting wealthy and we're teaching people how to get things from God and our nation is going to hell in a handbasket. Because the church has lost its saltiness and we have had no influence for decades on our culture. Okay, that's my generation. That's in my lifetime. But what has been the role of the church historically in America? What's the root of racism in America? Now, to this point, how many of you have sort of somewhat been in agreement with everything I've said? Raise your hand, okay? Everybody's okay with what I've said? Okay, well, I may lose some of you from this point on. Okay, so here we go. 25 years may be over. Okay. When the, when the first white settlers came to this country... Um, let me tell you, they did not come to assimilate with the native tribes. They did not come to join with them in life. They came to dominate and conquer them. Let me give you a picture of this. Let me tell you, this whole issue of racism in America that we're seeing today is like the apples on a tree, okay? 
All that we're seeing, all the violence we're seeing, that's just fruit. That's not the root. Can everybody see the difference? Okay. And so we, we can stop this and stop that and stop this and stop that. And all you did was take an apple off the tree. You haven't dealt with the root of that fruit. Okay. What I'm going to talk to you about, what is the root of racism in the American church and in American politics? In 1620, a Puritan preacher, elder, and lawyer, okay, same guy, John Winthrop, came over on a ship, and on his way, that's significant, on his way here, not on arrival, on his way, he wrote a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity. And in his sermon, he had multiple points, point one, point two, point three, but okay. And what it was, was a a devised strategy for the white race coming to this new continent as the new Israel and the new chosen people of God. This issue is is spiritual to the root. What we're seeing today, though it may take on many expressions, is spiritual to the root. White preachers came, white settlers came, white Christians came with the intent to establish a new world preparing for the new Jerusalem. Their theology was that the new Jerusalem, a revelation would come to America because they were now the new Israel and the new chosen people of God. I need to run through a lot of stuff. Okay. Uh, the, the, the principles of his sermon actually declared that the future of the right race was destined by God in an inevitable conclusion granted by God to rule over everyone else. And his principles became the justification for territorial expansion and acquisition by, quote, white men over inferior races and peoples. They believed there was a a manifest divine destiny for white people in these colonies to establish on earth the moral dignity and salvation of man. And I have to tell you, I read that and I think, what arrogance. We're coming here to establish moral dignity and the salvation of man. Okay? All of this is divine providence, God's chosen people. There were three major themes to this work. Number one, the virtue of American people over others. The mission to spread the American institutions, thereby redeeming and remaking the world in the image of the United States. The destiny 
under God to do this. Let me read part of his sermon. It declared that the American Anglo-Saxon race was separate, innately superior to other peoples. Inferior races, meaning anyone other than free white men, inferior races were doomed to subordinate status or extinction. And this message became justification to the enslavement of blacks and the expulsion and possible extermination of Indians in the name of God. I will say this. The white settlers came in the name of God, but they did not come in the heart of God. All of this was wrapped up in, this, in the colonies and then in the states in, a, in a, an eschatology of post-millennialism. Okay, now I know I have got former students sitting in here. Do you guys remember post-millennialism? We talked about it in systematic theology. And I'm not going to put you on the stop, spot and have you define it, but Chris, do you remember the term post-millennialism? Anybody else? Okay. Basically, it means Jesus is not going to come back until the church has dominated the world for a thousand years. When we kind of prove who we are and dominate everybody, he will then come to reign on this new earth that we have created for him. That's post-millennialism. But they took it another step further. They wrapped up all of their post-millennialism in the concept of white men ruling for God's glory. And when I emphasize something, I'm quoting, okay? Nathan Hatch, who is presently the president of Wake Forest University, wrote a book that 2,000 historians say that it is the top one or two book ever written on the history of the American church. And Nathan Hatch in his book says that the evangelical movement, church movement, played a key role in the development of democratic thought. Multiple history books account this. When the colonies were established, people came and, and they were driven by two things to the approval of God and the desire for political freedom. They didn't want to be ruled by King George anymore. And they came believing, largely because of this man's sermon, that God was giving his okay. They had God's approval and the desire to be free from King George. But what they did in the early days of the colonies for at least 30 years no person could hold office unless they belonged to a church. Okay. Why did they come over here? To be free from church and state. They wanted separation of church and state. So what do they come and do? They come and just establish a new law. You can't be a politician unless you're a local member, church member. 
So what are they hearing in the local church? It's God's divine destiny for whites to rule over everybody else. Everyone else is inferior. Let me tell you something. You hear today, you hear the terms white superiority. You know what they're doing? They're quoting preachers from the 1600s. White preachers. That's a white term. So when you find black people today quoting it, no need to get upset. They're just quoting preachers. White privilege. All the terminology being bounced around today, it came from the sermons of white preachers who were molding the minds and the hearts of all the politicians who would soon be elected to a position. In 1783, so now we're talking like 150 years after the first white settlers came, a Congregationalist minister, while president of Yale University, preached a sermon emphasizing the American people, comma, white people as God's chosen people. Two years later, it was put into a book entitled The United States Elevated to Glory and Honor. In this book, he emphasized four things. Number one, America is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Number two, America will be the superior and sovereign people among all peoples. And this one, I, the others were horrible, but this one just blew me away. The purest form of Christianity will be that of America. Are you serious? If what I've experienced in my lifetime is the purest form of Christianity, there is no hope for anybody. <laughs> if this is as good as it gets, God help us. His last point, the church blended with America will be augmented into a single superiority. Another preacher said that the American people, and by the way, anytime these people talked about people, they literally meant free white men. Nobody else. Because nobody else had a vote. Nobody else had a voice. Another preacher said that American people, free white men, were not simply reinvigorated immigrants, but they were a new and special race. Okay, let me jump ahead of 50 years. To the time of the Revolution, American Revolution to 1832, when there's a period called the Second Great Awakening. And there's, a, there's a, a great spiritual move where the gospel is presented to everybody, whites, blacks, Indians, everybody. And there's a lot of people getting saved. But that's where it stopped. Within the churches, you could get saved. You were good enough for God, but you weren't good enough for us. You see, because racism continued, and you can be saved, but here's what you do, Okay? There were four things that actually 
compelled thousands of black people to leave the church. The general message of the church, though it offered redemption in Christ, was a theology and message which kept them in subordinate positions to white believers. Segregating seating was enforced. Blacks were forbidden to vote on church matters, and blacks could not hold leadership positions. How many of you have ever heard of Charles Finney? Charles Finney, great revivalist, thousands of people say. But it was a white revival. Few Indians, few black people saved in his meetings, but thousands of white people. But it didn't have a lot of impact on, if you will, regular living. Charles Finney said, now remember, all these preachers are post-millennialist. We've been given a mandate by God to rule and conquer inferior peoples until Jesus comes. He said in 1835, if the church will do its job, the millennium can begin in three years, or 1838. A historian wrote of that era concerning priests and preachers. He said, where I expect to find a priest or a preacher, I find a politician. So not only are they preaching this salvation in Christ, the preachers are also preaching this political position of dominance and control and superiority. All right, let me jump ahead. I, I've got so much stuff. I don't even know what time it is, but how many will stay with me till I'm done? Okay. Uh, in, in 1848, or 218 years after the Puritans arrived, this is shortly after, now this gets... Personal here. Shortly after the annexation of Texas from Mexico. Now that's their word, annexation. What really happened? A war which conquered. Okay? All right. So after the annexation of Texas, there is a move in Congress to annex all of Mexico because the Mexican army is now weak. The government has lost its will. This is the perfect time for us to annex Mexico. What does that mean? Now's a good time for us to conquer Mexico. Okay? Now remember, this is 218 years after the uh, Puritans have come. And this is now like 65 or 70 years following the American Revolution. The common belief was expressed in Congress by Senator John C. Calhoun of South Carolina. This senator had approved the annexation of Texas, but he was opposed to the annexation of Mexico. And this is what he said on January the 4th, 1848, before all the houses of Congress. I quote, We have never dreamt of incorporating into our union any but the Caucasian race, the free white race. To incorporate Mexico would be the first instance of the kind of incorporating an Indian race. For more than half of the Mexicans are Indians, and the other half is co composed chiefly of mixed tribes. I protest against such a union as that, Ours, sir, is the government of a white race. 
237. Now, the reason I'm giving you all these long periods of time is that you begin to see woven into the whole church and political fabric of this nation is white superiority, white privilege, white supremacy coming from white preachers who molded the shape and thinking of white politicians. 237 years after the white race landed in America, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Robert Roger B. Taney, issued a decree in support of legal supremacy. And the year was 1857 and the Dred Scott ruling. How many are familiar at all with the term? You've ever even heard the phrase Dred Scott ruling? I have a copy of that. I just want to hit a couple of highlights of what, what he ruled in 1857, some 237 years after the whites came. The words people of the United States and citizen are synonymous terms, and they mean the same thing. They both describe the political body who, from the sovereignty and who hold the power, and conduct the government through their representatives, the question before us is whether the class of persons described in the plea of abatement the people of American, excuse me, of African ancestry compose a portion of this people under the Constitution and are constituent members of this sovereignty. We think they are not, and that they are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution. And there's some more stuff. Let me, let me jump down to, uh, okay. Uh, the legislations and history of the times were of class of persons who had been imported as slaves, and neither they nor their descendants, whether they become free or not, were then acknowledged as part of the people, nor intended to be included in the general words of that memorable instrument, the Constitution. The general words above quoted, and I'm quoting him now, seem to embrace the whole human family, if they were used in a similar instrument, they would be so understood. But it is too clear to dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted the Declaration of Independence. Well, some four years after he wrote that, the Civil War began. So in 18... 65, then the Civil War, blacks were given the freedom on paper. And that's the only place it counted, was on paper. How many of you are familiar with Jim Crow laws? You ever heard the word Jim Crow? You know what they are? Well, all across the states, when the Constitution, and there was an amendment added, okay? Uh, after the Civil War, uh, President Lincoln gave blacks their freedom, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were added to the Constitution. The 13th gave the black people citizenship. The 14th gave them the right to vote. And the 15th uh, took away uh, mandated slavery, slavery and labor uh, for indebted, indentured labor. Okay? And that 14th one, which gave everyone the right to vote, left out women. That didn't happen until the 1900s. It's still a white man's government. Okay? 
But they had these amendments so that blacks now are free. Blacks have the right to vote. But so since now blacks are free, all over this nation, Jim Crow laws were established, which were local laws. And the federal government just looked the other way. Federal laws with horrific penalties if someone broke them. And they were all designed for black people. So it just became a legal way to have free black labor. You'll need to check on that yourself. Uh, and the use of indentured labor or peonage was at work in this country until the 1950s, where if a man was in debt to you, you could put him to work until he paid it off. And it was always black people having to pay a debt they couldn't pay, so they were hired out to do work. Let me get back on track. 1855. 265 years after the whites have come, 20 years after the Civil War is over, a black preacher, excuse me, a white preacher, Isaiah Strong, who happened to be one of the most influential Christian voices of his generation, wrote a book, Our Country. That book became the Bible for people convinced that it was an Anglo-Saxon race's destiny to dominate and even eliminate inferior races of the world. He wrote, It seems to me that God, with infinite wisdom and skill, is, is that not atrocious? It seems to me that God, with infinite wisdom and skill, is training the Anglo-Saxon for this hour. The world will soon enter a new stage of its history. The final competition of the races for which the Anglo-Saxon is being schooled. This race of unequaled energy, the purest Christianity, having developed peculiarly aggressive traits, will spread itself over the earth. And can anyone doubt the result of this competition? In my mind, there is no doubt that the Anglo-Saxon is to experience the commanding influence of the world's future. Let me wrap this up. The evidence of history reveals that the primary root of racism in America is in a broad-brushed sense, the white church. It validated the legislative and judicial strength of democracy from its pulpit, its preaching, and its writings. So what is the role the church has played and where we are? Well, let me suggest this to you. There is not a simple answer, but there has to be a beginning point. And the beginning point is this. The healing of this nation with racial tension rests on the shoulders and the responsibility of white people. I want to put this in real plain English. We caused this. We have to fix this. That's too simple, but you get the idea. Okay? And specifically, white preachers have to take the lead. White preachers started this, and white preachers have to take the lead in healing this in this nation.
There needs to be a repentance. There needs to be a humility from white preachers in the white church. Now let's go back to what I said from Paul's radical alternative in Christ where there is no ethnicity. There's no privilege. There's no distinction in Christ of ethnicity. That's what the church must go back to. So when I see a white person, a black person, a Mexican person, a native Indian, or wherever they're, come, they're from, I see them not through the eyes of the flesh, but through the eyes of the spirit. And that person has as much value in the heart of God as I have. The next thing I think the white church needs to do is start listening. And don't minimize the experience or the story of black people. Don't minimize it. That's real. I'll tell you this. There is no white person. I don't care how well intended your heart is. There is no white person that can ever understand life through the eyes of a black person. It cannot be done. So I need to listen. And I need to pay attention when they talk. And if I don't, I'm just continuing the concept of white privilege and white superiority. If I don't give them the same ear, I want someone to give me in telling my story. I don't know what time it is, but I've kept you way past normal. But I'll tell you, don't, don't do this. <laughs> I love this nation. I have traveled the world. I have been in five, on five of the seven continents and 30-something countries on those continents. And there's not another nation like this. We really have experienced the favor of God. But I'll tell you where I think we are. I have coined a phrase. If someone has used it somewhere else, I'm not borrowing it. I've never heard it. So this is my phrase unless I see it somewhere else. And that, that is the principle of continuity. And I find this in Scripture. This principle of continuity where to our eyes, we see things that are distinctively separate and different. But to the eyes of God, they are a continuity of the same whole. Let me give you an illustration. How many of you remember the scripture says that God will bless the righteous to the fourth generation? Are you familiar with that? That's the principle of continuity. Okay, so maybe David's a righteous man. God says, I'm going to bless you to the fourth generation. But wait a minute. That's 400 years from now. David's long gone. But that principle of continuity in the eyes and heart of God is still going on. Did everybody see that? But the scripture also talks about God. will hold judgment to the fourth generation. And those people are dead and gone. But 400 years later, 
in that continuity of the whole, that nation is judged by God. And that's all through Scripture, both the blessing and the judgment. How many follow what I'm saying right now in this principle and continuity? In 1620, the Puritans came with their we're superior message, white Christians, in 1620. How many years since then to now? 400 years, four generations in God's eye. Everybody follow my thought here? This whole thing is spiritual to the core. Does it affect people in everyday life? Oh, absolutely. But in the eyes of God, there is a spiritual mandate that is here. And that is that the church come to repentance and the church lay aside its prejudice and its bias. And it has to start with the church. It's not going to start in Austin and it's not going to start in Washington. I'm telling you, nothing good is going to come out of Washington. Okay? It's going to come out of the church. And in the church, we white people have to lead the way of repentance and restoration. I am totally convinced. I, mean, I really am. I am totally convinced. And I have worked with Native Indians. In fact, the first miracle of my ministry was a Navajo lady who, got, uh, who was deaf and got healed. I have worked with American Indians. I have worked with Hispanics. I have three grandchildren that are one-fourth Mexican. I have worked in Nigeria since 1998. It's over 22 years. I have worked in Asia for 32 years. I have worked with multiple cultures around the world. And one thing I have found is a sense of graciousness. Whenever I have humbled myself as it was needed, and they received it. I am totally convinced that if white preachers and the white church would humble ourselves before God and lay at his feet any sense of religious or spiritual superiority, I believe the other races would embrace us and forgive us. I want to tell you something. I don't endorse the looting that's taking place in this country. I really don't. But I understand there's something bigger going on than that, and that's the spiritual root of the problem. That's just apples on the tree. Everybody, The root of the problem goes back to the spiritual dimension of the role the white preachers and the white church have played. And we need to lead the way. I would like for all of you, as part of the family of God, all of you, regardless of what the eye sees as race or ethnicity or gender, I'd like for you to stand. And I want us to pray and humble ourselves before God. Father, I, I bow before you, my heart before you today. And I ask you to work by your Holy Spirit in my heart and in the heart of every person here, your work. Really, really bring us into your kingdom to where we understand we have dual citizenship 
one here. But primarily, I am first a citizen of heaven, which has a different government than this government. Father, enable us by your spirit to from this day forward do our best by your guidance not to judge or see people through natural eyes, but to see them as you do through spiritual eyes. And that every single person has the same value before God. And they have the same accessibility to God that I have. Father, I tell you, I openly refute and reject the concept of white preachers and the white church and the founding of this nation. I refute it and rebuke it in the name of Jesus. Evil, racism is a sin. Forgive us of our sin, Lord. Start a work in your people of this nation that can bring healing at every level. Father, have mercy on us and have kindness. And I pray, Father, through your church, the one church, you will begin to speak and work your heart. Give people of your church courage to not be intimidated. No matter what people the world may say, may we stand strong and declare this is God's truth. This is God's truth. And give us the courage to speak up and not be silent in the face of injustice. Father, touch us. Empower us by your spirit, I pray.